why should postprandial blood glucose be kept under 140 milligrams per deciliter? This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ Masterpass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. The first runner-up is from Diogo Barardo, PhD. And my summary is, he says, why should postprandial blood glucose be kept under 140 milligrams per deciliter? And uh, his full question is, where does your threshold of 140 for glucose spikes being nasty come from? Can you delve into it, please? And I want to first clarify that uh, nasty is an overstatement. So my position is that when glucose spikes over 140 milligrams per deciliter, this is generally around the threshold associated with activation of the polyol pathway, which is a tax on the supply of NADPH and tends to have, uh, you are likely to have reduced glutathione recycling as well as other uh, re reduced recycling of vitamin C and so on. And this is suboptimal metabolism, okay? So I'm not saying when your glucose goes above 140, metabolically you're deteriorating. I'm saying when your glucose goes above 140, you are beginning to enter in to a metabolic state that is suboptimal. And where does that come from? Well, let me show you. I, I showed this in my erythritol and blood clotting article, but what we're looking at here is plasma glucose on the horizontal axis and CSF or cerebrospinal fluid sorbitol on the vertical axis. And we have three groups. So the blue circles are healthy controls. Those with elevated CSF glucose but not diabetes are the green squares. And the type 2 diabetics are the purple diamonds. And what you can see is that the uh, blue and Blue circles and green diamonds overlap with each other um, in this first cluster, which seems to be at the bottom lower left of this graph. And then you have a gap up to higher CSF sorbitol with higher plasma glucose. And you have uh, an increasing scatter as you, as you go higher. Um, where uh, where you basically have, um, I guess what you could say is the correlation between plasma glucose and, and CSF sorbitol becomes less tight. And that's primarily, that is manifested partly as a spread across the line. But I would argue that uh, you really have more, you have a little bit more deviation on the upper left part, which is basically signifying people that have a greater sorbitol production from the glucose, right? So if you look at if you look at this cluster over here, this cluster is closer to the line than this cluster is. This cluster spreads out in this direction a little bit more in my eyes. And that that to me is saying that the down here you're getting kind of a linear relation between glucose and sorbitol. But you do have a gap up between plasma glucose under six millimoles per liter and above. Um, 
but then you also have a greater spread of variability uh, as you go up, and then you and then you have like these outliers up here. So generally, it's linear, but there is a gap up, and as you go higher, you get increased variability. So to me, what that is saying is that normal sorbitol levels are down in this this glucose plasma glucose between four and six millimolar range, and this you get this gap between six and eight that goes up. And that gap is around the 140 milligrams per deciliter uh, mark when we convert those numbers. Then uh, also, let's see, I did I not put the graphs here? All right, I, I don't. I didn't put the graphs in here, but I did cite. Uh, I did cite a couple other studies. So when you use insulin to bring let me pull up this paper. So this is red cell sorbitol concentration in relation to short and medium-term variation plasma glucose. What they did in this study was they showed that um, normal people have normal levels of plasma glucose and diabetics have elevated levels of plasma glucose. But when they use insulin to bring the diabetic concentration of glucose down to the 140 mark, that's when the sorbitol gets down to the normal level. Um, and then there's another paper that's cited in here that um, yeah, it's this paper right here. So relationship between glutathione and sorbitol concentrations and erythrocytes from diabetic patients. If you look at that paper, what that shows is that sorbitol is in, in, inversely correlated with glutathione concentrations, and I think that reflects that activation of, this, of the polyol pathway, turning glucose into sorbitol to dispose of excess glucose above 140, uh, is decreasing glutathione recycling by sapping NADPH from that process. Now, to clarify my position, we can go to my self-experiments in the biochemically unoptimized state. And let me uh, keyword search to get there faster. I did 25 glucose tolerance tests on myself with 25 to 65 grams of glucose between December and January of the turn of this year. If I thought that glucose going over 140 was gonna kill me, I would not have done these experiments. So that's point number one. It's suboptimal metabolism. It's not, it's not utter destruction. Um, but point number two is what I show here is that uh, I went to the wrong. I went to the wrong. I'm just gonna have to scroll down. What I showed in this in these experiments is that you rapidly adapt over time to glucose, right? So this is, I did three trials with 40 grams of glucose separated by a few days each. And my peak glucose goes down with each with each time. Area under the curve, average glucose, et cetera, does the same thing. Eight days later, I did this again, and it's even clearer. Peak glucose goes dramatically down each time. And what's the end goal? The end goal of this adaptation by testing on myself seems to be 
that after you do it a few times, you will keep your plasma glucose under 140 the whole time, and you'll keep the average glucose response under 120. And so I fear that if people are afraid of plasma glu glucose of 140 and they exaggerate the downsides of that, what will happen is they will wear a CGM, see all the times it goes above 140, and then say, oh, I can't eat this, I can't eat that, I can't eat that. Then they run from the plasma glucose and they, and they progressively get more and more glucose intolerant as a result of that because they're losing the adaptation that they already had to their normal foods rather than gaining the adaptation by doing it repeatedly. And I think that's the opposite of what you want to do. So I would say that you don't conclude anything ever about your blood glucose if you have not demonstrated that it's repeatable. And what you will see when you repeatedly consume something is you adapt to it. When does it become unhealthy? It becomes unhealthy when you cannot adapt to it. Right, so the glycemic load spiking glucose one forty is not the end of your health. Where you've discovered a block in your health is not that it happened; it's that you repeated this every day for a week and you had no adaptation. That would demonstrate that you have a problem being able to adapt to blood glucose uh, to the glycemic load. So that's where that comes from. Thank you, Diogo, for your question. This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ MasterPass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. If you want to become a MasterPass member so that you can participate in the next live Q&A, or so that you can have access to the complete recording and transcript of each Q&A session, you can join at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash masterpass. You can save 10% off the subscription price for as long as you remain a member by signing up at chrismasterjohnphd.substack.com slash Q&A. That's Q&A spelled out as Q-A-N-D-A. These links are in the description.